Well, for those of you who didn't know, today is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and uh, I think it's uh, appropriate because uh, tomorrow, of course, is uh, Martin Luther King Day, and it's amazing to me how the human race all over the world uh, always has clamored for freedom. It's something that is the desire of, of the heart of every sentient being, I think, uh, this idea of freedom. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that there's the philosophies of the people of this world, or of this world, I should say, and then there's the philosophies and the teachings of Almighty God. And we have to understand that the two are at odds with one another. And the world is always promising freedom. The world is always promising liberty. Uh, and not only that, but it, it always, it all, all, excuse me, it often associates the truths and the things of God with bondage. And it's interesting, if you're a student of the scriptures, to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. And this is exactly what Satan did in, in the garden. You know, he basically told Adam and Eve, you know, God is keeping you down. God is trying to keep you in a box. God is trying to keep you from realizing all that you could be. You know, that's why he doesn't want you to partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because he knows you'll be like him and you'll have this higher understanding. You know, and it's, it's amazing to me how people, oh, what a silly fairy tale, what a silly fairy tale. And yet, mankind is always straining and seeking to attain, you know, remember the Tower of Babel, and they're always seeking to, to reach and to attain some higher level of enlightenment from themselves. And the strangest thing happens, the most amazing thing happens, and the most awful and terrible things happen. As mankind seeks to reach and ascend to these heights, to be like the Most High, what they find is that they're actually more like their father, the devil. Remember, that's what Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees who were seeking to kill him. This isn't original with me, and I'm not pointing the finger at any group of people or any, or any person in particular. What I'm saying is, is that he told the Pharisees when they said, we have Abraham for our father. Don't you understand? We are children of the promise. And Jesus Christ pointed out to them, if you were really and truly children of the promise, if you truly understood the promises of God and the prophecies of God and the things that God foretold through your father Abraham, then you would know who it is that you're speaking with. And you would understand the ministry and you know what is going out. Uh, you would know what is going on here, but you're not the children of God, and you're not the children of Abraham, you're of your father, the devil. And Jesus wasn't very popular after that, after that message. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, is that we, left to our own devices, this historically has always been the problem with organized religion. Because you have something that starts out as a movement, a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit, a movement of God, and then men come in. And men take it over, and men become, they come up with their doctrinal books and their lists and their rules and all of these different things, and it becomes more about what they've created than what about God created. And ultimately and eventually, things left in the hands of man and in the, in the hands of the, the hearts of men is ultimately always perverted and turned into something that's wrong. Because that's what the Bible says about our hearts. The Bible says that our heart is deceitful and it's exceedingly wicked and it's beyond knowing. It's beyond even finding out. I am not even fully aware of what the things are that I'm capable of doing outside of the love and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. 
And so the Bible teaches us to have a complete and total submission and a complete and total reliance upon the Word of God and the things that He teaches us because in them are found true, real freedom. And how, how is it that we can be such an enlightened nation, so-called, and be living in such an age of knowledge and of understanding and the things, you know, you got the, I got my tablet that coordinates with my watch, that coordinates with my phone, and oh, beep, 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 what's going on? I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, I heard when there was the anniversary of the moon landing that you have more computing power in your phone that you hold in your lap. It's like 100,000 times more computing power than NASA had when they landed on the moon. And we slaughter our children we slaughter them as though they were things to just be thrown away because it's inconvenient for me. And it's getting in the way of my higher enlightenment. And this is not to make us angry, and this is not to make us mad at people. This is for us to see and understand fully that the whole world truly lies under the sway of the wicked one. And God has called you, and God has called me, to simply shine the light. Not to go out and tell people all the ways that they're wrong. Not to tell people that they're wicked, miserable, evil, awful sinners and God just can't wait to toss them into hell. But the opposite of that, hell was created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for mankind. We are God's own special creation. We were created in the image and likeness of God for one purpose and that is to have fellowship with him. But in the search of enlightenment and wisdom that came from ourselves, we found ourselves cast out of paradise because sin entered the world, and the Bible says death came through sin, and we've now been separated. And so mankind left to his own devices, and I mean the very best of us, and the greatest, and the most magnanimous, and the most charitable of us. There's still corners of our hearts that are wicked and that are dark and that are far from God in one way or another. And so Jesus came, and God set out to perform the greatest rescue mission that has ever been accomplished or attempted in the history of all the universe. And he foretold of it from Genesis, immediately following the fall, all the way up through the law, and all the way up through the prophets. Jesus Christ being seen through the things that God commanded and through the things that God set aside for the children of Israel so that when finally Messiah came, they would see him and they would know, there he is. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he's doing. Surely this must be the Son of God. But instead, they had sought to seek righteousness after their own hearts and after their own devices and after their own understanding and by bringing in learned and wise and understanding men to really interpret what the Scriptures mean, and they lost God completely and entirely to the point that when His only begotten Son came to earth, they had no idea who He was, and worse than that, they thought He was an enemy. And Jesus told them something amazing and terrifying. He said, I've come to you in my Father's name, and you will not receive me, but another will come to you. And he'll come to you in his own name, and him you will receive. Speaking, of course, of the Antichrist, and speaking 2,000 years prophetically, at least, into the future. Why? Why? 
because man left to their own devices and man anywhere standing outside of complete and total and utter reliance upon the things of God and upon his word and upon the power of the Holy Spirit find ourselves lost, find ourselves in darkness and find ourselves wallowing in our own wickedness. There's one hope. There's one escape for everyone, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen. And as the scripture says, how can they know unless someone tells them? And how can anyone tell them unless they're sent? And he goes on to quote that scripture, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I want my feet to be beautiful. I want when people see me coming to see light, to see hope, to see love. Now, the scripture clearly points out the fact that you are only going to be that to those people who are seeking after life and who are seeking after light and are seeking after truth because you are children of the light and you are children of truth. People who are children of darkness and people who hate the light are going to hate you as well. We were never called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be popular in this world. We never, were never called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be well-liked in this world. If that's your personality and you have a gift and a knack for it, then that's a bonus. But what you've been called to be is a light that shines in a dark place. And to have that heart of Jesus Christ that saw the multitudes as, as sheep having no shepherd and having that great and overwhelming compassion on them. That ought to be our hearts, that ought to be our thoughts, that ought to be our prayers every single day. And you can't do all the ministries, guys. And what's more, you're not called to do all the ministries. My encouragement to you as your pastor always is to seek, 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 seek after what your ministry is. If you haven't found it yet, keep seeking because there is a ministry for you. And maybe you're already doing it and you don't even realize it. But there is a ministry for you. You have a job to do. Every single one of us does. And my ultimate goal in all of it is to hear at the end of the rainbow, if you want to call it that, or when I cross over the Jordan, when I close my eyes in death, or when the rapture comes, well done, good and faithful servant not based upon the good works that I've done. We understand that. But well done, good and faithful servant, because my heart was right before the Lord, because it was given to Jesus Christ, it was given to honoring my Father in heaven, and it was given to loving people. My heavens, the Scripture lays it out so clearly that those two are inseparable commandments. If you claim to love God and you don't have love for your brother, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And I find this perverseness in me when I'm watching the news or I'm seeing this or I'm reading that. And I find towards a person or towards a group of people, individual, whatever the case may be, that there's this animosity or this feeling of contempt or this feeling of anger. And that is not the spirit of God in me. That's the spirit of Frank in me. And I know that in my heart dwells no good thing. How could I ever do the work of the ministry of my own device, and my own power, and my own wisdom? It has to come from the Lord, being given to him. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. 
I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all, and they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. And we're going to be picking up in um, verse 12. This is a, this is a chapter about freedom. <laughs> it's a chapter about freedom. And this is what God laid out for the children of Israel. I'm going to read from, from, verse, uh, from verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then, the seventh, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You see what God's doing there? And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. What is God commanding here? That you have compassion towards others, remembering where you were brought from, remembering what you were rescued out of. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you, and your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door. And you don't leave him there. Then you take it out. You put an earring in. Uh, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. So here we have, first of all, the law of the Hebrew slave. Now, a Hebrew could end up being the servant uh, of another Hebrew through a few different ways. He could become so because their parents sold them to pay a debt. They could become that way because they sold themselves to pay a debt, or they could become that way because uh, they were sold by the court for some crime that they had committed. So there was a few different ways uh, that a Hebrew could become a servant of another Hebrew, but they could only serve six years, a Hebrew could, and in the seventh year, they were to be set free. Now, 
The number seven is very significant in the Bible, and the reason that it's significant always goes back again to that creation account. It's interesting to me always how, uh, you know, the theory of evolution, and I don't, I'm not a science major like my dad, and I don't, you know, the RNA and the DNA and the deoxyribonucleic acids and all that, blah, blah, blah. I know that word, but, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a science guy or anything like that, but I know this. If Satan can get the whole world to discount the creation story, the rest of the Bible goes out the window with it. If you're a student of Scripture, you know this, and you understand this because so many of the most basic concepts of Scripture and the prophecies of, uh, uh, of Scriptures all go back to the creation account. It all, it all starts there and everything flows from there and the prophecies and everything else. So it's a very important thing for us as Christians. If you're a Christian out there who has a problem believing in creation because you, of course, come up through the school systems being taught uh, evolution or whatever, pray to God. And ask for God to give you faith in that thing. And I was talking to a, a brother this week and I was telling him, look, if you want to know the truth and if you want to believe in the things of God, there are tons, tons of, of uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Re thank you. That's the perfect word, mama. Resources, resources out there so that you can know that the reason that we believe what we believe is not just based on some pie in the sky, invisible man in the sky, daydream fairy tale. Like we're just a bunch of bozos that walk around, and we have no basis on upon which for basis upon which the well, whatever. <laughs> we have no basis for the things that we believe in. Thank you, sir. There are resources available. So many. Have you ever read the case for the case for Christ, or seen the movie The Case for Christ? It's incredible. It's unbelievable. If you are a person that wants to have faith in God, there are resources out there that will help you in that journey. But if you're a person that does not have faith or does not want to have faith, there are a ton of resources out there to teach you the contrary. At the end of the day, I believe that the way God set it up purposefully, purposefully is so that you would have to exercise faith to come to God. God never wanted us to come to him completely based on faith and not on any kind of understanding whatsoever. But the basis for us coming to him and the basis for our justification is what? Faith is faith. You have to have faith. So when we talk about a historical event from the scriptures, like the exodus from Egypt, well, you know, you don't have to believe, and I, this is talking to an unbeliever, you, don't, you may not believe in, in the crossing of the Red Sea, you may not believe in the angel of death, you may not believe in the frogs and the gnats and the, the flies and, and, and the waters turning to blood and all of these other different, you may not believe in those things, but historically they left Egypt. And historically, a nation of slaves that have been in slavery for 400 years don't just decide one day they're going to get up and walk away from the most powerful nation on earth unless they're given their freedom. And that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't of the Egyptians' accord, was it? Well, you can believe or you cannot believe. But if you want to believe in the things of God, there is plenty of evidence there, and you can then fill in the blanks. But at the end of the day, you've got to believe in some miracles, don't you? You have to believe in things and some things that the world says, that's ridiculous, that's crazy, that doesn't make any sense. But when you know God intuitively, it makes perfect sense. So the number seven being very significant in the Bible, it all goes back to the garden. It all goes back to the creation event where God created the world and all that is in it in six days. You all know this, right? And on the seventh day, he rested. Now, Dad earlier was, uh, in the first service was talking about the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years, okay? So you had 49 years, which is a week of years, seven sevens. 
each day, each year, each seven years representing a day. Seven times seven is 49. I had to do that on a calculator, but I have it written down here now. Seven times seven is 49. So for 49 years, there were debts, there were things of that nature. In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, every debt was released. Every, every uh, slave was set free. All, were, all things like that were forgiven. Any land that had been sold was restored to the family that sold it. It was a commandment of God. But within that, you have this shorter seven-year period for the Hebrews. If they were in slavery or if they were in servitude towards another Hebrew, at the, on the seventh year, they must be released. The law of the Sabbath was based on the seven. Remember, on the six days God created earth, and the seventh day he rested, and that's the law of the Sabbath. God took that very seriously, didn't he? This is not just a light thing. Oh, isn't that interesting? This is very important stuff in the word of God. And this is stuff that is very important to God. He reiterates it over and over and over and over and over again. Why do you drill things and reiterate things and tell you, I've heard you say that a thousand times. Why did you say it a thousand times to him? So that they would finally listen. And so that it would sink in. I'm going to keep telling you that until it sinks in, young lady or young man, whatever. Well, God reiterates these things over and over and over again because he wants them to see the picture. There's something important that's going on here. There's something that's very, very huge that God is working into all of this. And he starts by teaching them about the Sabbath. Then he teaches them about the Jubilee. And he teaches them about the seven years, uh, the seventh year in which all Hebrew slaves were set free. Now, if you believe uh, the Bible again, follow its timeline, then you believe that the world is almost 7,000 years old based on the genealogical records of Genesis leading up to when the historical events started taking place. You can go back to Genesis and you can follow the genealogy. This one lived this many years. This one lived that many years. This one lived this many years. And you can follow it all the way through and you can come to the understanding that according to the scriptures... Our earth is close to 7,000 years old. It's 6,000 some, some years old. Now, again, you're setting yourself up for ridicule in the world we live in, aren't you? I once heard Pastor Chuck say this. When, he created, when God created man and, and, and woman, he created them fully formed as adults, right? Fully developed, fully matured adults. There wasn't just a baby lying there in the sand. Well, good luck, kid. You know, we'll see how this works out, you know. No, he created man out of the dust of the, worth, uh, of the earth as a fully formed and functioning and cognizant and brilliant, quite frankly, man. And the same thing with the woman. And Pastor Chuck once said, well, when, when God created the earth, why wouldn't he have created the earth in the same way? Being fully matured, being fully formed and all these other things so that you might look at that earth and say, wow, millions of years or whatever the case may be, according to your little understanding, but that's because God created it fully functioning, fully formed, fully perfect. Again, these are not the things that I'm expert in, so I mention it and I move on, right? Um, but according to the genealogical record and what Scripture teaches us, that's how old the earth almost is, almost 7,000 years. You, 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 you read in between the lines, okay, where we're at? If you haven't seen, we posted a video on Facebook, and you can find it on YouTube. It's called The Bereshit Prophecy. Now, I'm not up here to, to, uh, to, to give extra credence to this. I'm not up here to tell you that it's 100% true and everything that he says there is going to take place. The only time we know we're speaking the truth is when we're reading the Bible, okay? All I'm telling you is it is very, very interesting and fascinating. And he has the premise, uh, C.J. Lovick wrote the, wrote the book, The Bereshit Prophecy, 
Um, they explain the significance uh, of the 7,000 years as it relates to world history. And C.J. Lovick surmises that the 7,000-year clock began not at creation, which was always assumed by people who are biblical uh, theologians, but rather the 7,000-year clock began at the fall of man. This is, this is very basic. It's like an hour-long video, and there's a lot to it. But basically what he surmises is mankind fell into sin, right? Mankind fell into sin. Equate that to what we're reading here in Deuteronomy chapter 15. For whatever reason, a man or a woman was sold into servitude, right, because of a debt or because of a crime to another Hebrew family. And for six full years, they would serve that family. But in the seventh year, they would be completely set free. Well, Adam was not in debt and he had committed no crime up until the day that him and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, correct? So what he surmises is that that is when the clock started for the 7,000 years, not at Adam's creation, but at the fall. And he hypothesizes, okay, again, this is just free information, take it or leave it. What if Adam fell at the age of 33? What if he was 33 years old when he fell, and then you fast forward exactly, exactly 4,000 years, 5,000 years, help me, to when Jesus Christ died on the cross and the debt was paid. If you go from that point on, if you go from, from, from 33 at 33 years after creation, then to the death of Jesus Christ, and then fast forward from the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years to the end of 6,000 years, which would be the beginning of the 7,000th year, it takes you approximately to the year 2023. Approximately 2023. Again, I am not making a prophecy. I am not telling you that this is absolutely unequivocally true, but it's fascinating. I would encourage you to watch that video and see what you think, and then we can, we can talk about it. You can yell at me and tell me how dumb I am or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, the second coming of Christ, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, says this, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So, according to this prophecy, according to, to, to C.J. Lobick and what he says, he believes that the second coming of Christ to the throne of David will be at the beginning of the 7,000th year. So, in other words, you have 6,000 years of bondage from the time that Adam fell until the time that Jesus Christ comes back. And we're not talking about the rapture, but the second coming of Christ, and he sits on the throne of David and rules the world for what? A thousand years, which would be a completion of 7,000 years, okay? Uh, and if you take into account the seven-year tribulation, right? Because you have that as well. From the rapture to the time when Jesus Christ, Christ comes back, you have 7,000 years, you got to watch the video, okay? I understand. I'm probably butchering this for you. But when you fast forward and then you rewind it back to seven years, it takes you to about 2023. Interesting. 
Interesting. And that's the only reason I'm telling you that. It's very, very interesting. I happen to be stoked on it. And I, like, I'm praying, like, oh, let it be true. Let it be true. But this is very important since, since I'm supposed to be some sort of a Bible teacher, right? And some sort of a pastor. I believe it's very important for me to tell you this as well, okay? Don't be clinging to dates, and don't be clinging to times, and don't be getting all of your eggs in one basket. Remember, the first Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church about the rapture. Second Thessalonians, he's like, listen, dummy, you're sitting up on the mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come back. You got a job to do. Get down off the mountaintop. That's where he says, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Okay? No one's going to, the angels aren't going to feed you like they did Elijah. Okay, pal, you got a job to do. Go to work. Do the things Christ has called you to do. I told you about the rapture so you could have that hope. It's called our blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we should be longing. All those that belong to him, the scripture teaches, long for his glorious appearing. And so that's the heart of every Christian and where we should be at. We shouldn't be on either side of the fence, either where we're naming dates. Remember 88, 1988? 88 reasons why the Lord's coming back in 1988. Wow. Then he never came back. And he wrote another book, 89 reasons why the Lord's coming back in 1989. My dad says that he was going to write a book in 1990 called 90 reasons this dude ain't going in the rapture. <laughs> so, you know, and then it's, it's the year 2000, 2012, an apocalyptic. And I remember Y2K. Ah, you know, Christians, get generators and bullets so you can shoot the people that come to you hungry, you know, just like Jesus did. Oh, Christians run around and freak out. And you know how many generators were sold on Craigslist in, 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 in February of 2000? You know, everyone bought all these generators and stuff. It's a good thing to have, isn't it? It's a good thing to have food stars. We know this from when we had the COVID lockdown. It's nice to have some extra things. You don't need all the toilet paper, though, people. Okay, you don't. You simply don't need it all. Don't you let yourself get caught up in that crap. No pun intended. Don't you let yourself get caught up in that. What does Jesus talk about? Don't you worry about what you're going to eat. He's not even talking about the Benzino you want to drive, right, or the new dirt bike you want. He's like, don't worry about what you're going to eat, where you're going to live, what you're going to wear. The heathens run around after these things. They run around like this, Wah! after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but you, quote it with me, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's why Jesus told the disciples that don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or excuse me, let me take this communion quick, you know, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. You store up your treasures in heaven because guess what? Nobody, nobody, nobody can take that from you. One of my favorite portions of scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in Babylon, and they build, they build the, of course, remember, Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant golden statue based on the dream that he had that was interpreted by Daniel, and only the head was gold in the dream. He makes the whole statue gold. My kingdom will endure forever. Now worship my statue. And when you hear the sound of all the instruments, you bow down and worship. But anybody who won't bow down and worship, this is, of course, also a picture of what's going to happen during the tribulation period, right? It's a prophecy about the kingdom of Antichrist, right? Anyone who doesn't worship his image and take his mark, kaputs. And they go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, look, I'm going to give you a chance. I like you boys. I really like you Christians. You're nice people. But you got to get with the program. How come you don't believe like everyone else believes? 
How come you're not doing the things the news tells you to do? How come you're not doing what your professors told you you got to do and what you got to believe and how you got to feel about all these things? You're not, listen, we like you, but we'll destroy you. We like you, but we'll cast you out. And we'll even put you in Facebook jail. <laughs> and I love it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, King, we're not even careful how we answer you. You know what I mean? Usually it's like, oh, king, may you live forever. And all this. We're not even careful how we answer you. We'll never worship your, your idol. We'll never bow down before it. And even if you throw us in the fiery furnace, our God is able to deliver it from, a, from, from the fire. But even if he doesn't, even if I go into the fire furnace and I get smoked, we'll never bow to your idols. We'll never follow your world system. We are aliens. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are just passing through. This carcass, this biomechanical suit that has too much padding around the center belongs to the United States of America. But my heart and my soul and all that I am is a citizen of heaven. And I hope you understand that I don't just say that hypothetically or to make some sort of metaphor or something like that. I am a citizen of heaven. And if it comes down to being a good American or being a good Christian, I'm not even careful how I answer you. It's not even a thought process. Jesus Christ first and foremost and everything in our lives. So at the beginning of the seventh year, the Hebrew servant was to be set free. And not only that, but they were to be sent out with possessions. We had nothing when we came to Jesus. <laughs> but if we serve him, he gives us everything. And of course, the picture that God was giving them, uh, the Israelites, from their point of view was, remember when you came out of Egypt. Remember that, that compassion, that understanding. When you have a Hebrew servant, and in the seventh year when he goes free, I want you to remember when I sent you out of Egypt. Uh, and remember in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 36, it says that God gave the children of Israel favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and he told them, go and ask of your neighbor for gold and silver and articles of clothing. And God gave them such favor with their Egyptian neighbors that they gave them so much that the Bible actually says in Exodus 12, 36, that they plundered the Egyptians based on God's favor. So someone who had nothing was taken care of as they served and then sent away with much. Now, if you're a business person, you might say, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. You ever heard the statement, fairness is the enemy of justice? It's not based on fairness. It's based on goodness. It's based on the grace and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. We come to Him bankrupt. Anybody who comes to Christ claiming to have something understands nothing. I have nothing to offer God. Nothing. He doesn't need me. Boy, he real caught a lucky break when I got saved. You know, well, now you really got a rock star on the team, God. Yeah, you know. Are you kidding me? He doesn't need me. In fact, he makes it clear. He goes, I like to use the stupid people. I mean, scriptures. Oh, oh a pastor. Oh, look, I'm so... Yeah, I, listen, I don't call a lot of smart people, right? 
So when you see the guy up behind the pulpit, and he's more like a three stooge, right? One of the three stooges than he is a pastor, okay? So when he says stuff and it makes sense, and like, wow, you know that's God, okay? Uh, the grace and mercy of God. I brought nothing to this relationship except my faith, my heart, as it is. And I say all the time, here I am, Lord. It's not a pretty picture, but it's all yours. And God makes something beautiful out of your life. And God blesses you, and he calls you a son and a daughter. The Bible says you are joint heirs, heirs, heirs with Jesus Christ. Imagine if somebody said, you think, you're not going to believe this, but you are a long-lost relative of Bill Gates, and you're entitled to like 65 trillion, billion, zillion, gadillion dollars. You'd be like, wow, that's unbelievable, and that's something. But you, the Bible says, and this isn't a fairy tale, you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when he does come back and rule from the throne of David and he rules planet earth for a thousand years, guess what? Guess where you're going to be? Ruling with him. That's unbelievable. I just don't have any better news for you really than that. Then uh, if at the end of their service they said, I've had it better with you than when I was free and I love you and your family, then they could choose to go into perpetual servitude. Now, I want you to understand too, sometimes there'll be multiple laws or multiple traditions or multiple sacrifices in order to equal one of the things that we have in Christ. You understand? Because Jesus is the prophet, Jesus is the priest, Jesus is the king, Jesus was our sacrifice, he's our tabernacle, it goes on and on and on, he's our covering, he's all these things. So oftentimes there would have to be these multiple laws to give us one picture, okay? So you have the laws of the freedom of the servant who serves for six years and the seventh year is set free, and then we have the law of the love slave. And obviously this was something that wasn't for everyone. Some of them, no doubt, at the end of their six years, just wanted to go and start their own life, wanted to be independent. But God understanding how it would be and that there would be some people who would be, and here's what I believe, the ones who really, really, really took this to heart, the ones who really said, if I have a Hebrew servant, I see them as a double blessing to me, and I'm going to take care of them best as I possibly can, and when I send them away, I'll send them away with as much as I possibly can. And they treat the servant thus, could very well be at the end of that six years, he hasn't said to you, the servant says, where am I going to go? You know where I came from? I was sold by my parents. Or I sold myself because I don't have anything. Or I committed a crime and I was brought to you as a criminal and you treated me like a brother or a sister. Where would I go? Where else would I want to be? I want to be a part of your family. Then they would take them to the doorpost and they would put an awl through their ear and put a ring in their ear and everyone who saw them would know this is a love slave. This is a love slave. Now, to some people it could be a sign of shame. Some people could look at it and go, oh, he couldn't take care of himself. Couldn't take care of himself. So, he had, you know, it's, oh, it works out for you, huh, buddy? But to that servant, but to that servant, it was a badge of honor. It was a badge of honor. And the pride was not of himself, I'm with him. I'm with this family. That's who I belong to. We're servants of the Most High God. And don't ever let the world try to shame you because you're a servant. Don't ever let the world try to tell you you're anything less than what you are in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're stopping there because it's 12.04 and we got communion to do. Come on down, guys. 
you know, it's always, especially as we're going through the Old Testament, it's like there's no better portions of Scripture to be going through to, to celebrate the Lord's table and communion than when we're going through the Old Testament talking about the sacrificial system. And we're talking about the, the love slave. And we're talking about Jubilee and the seven-year redemption uh, and all of these things. It's like Jesus Christ has set us free. Has set us free. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Free indeed. It doesn't matter what happens around us. It doesn't ha- matter what happens in the world. As a, as a servant of the Most High God and as a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am absolutely free. It just doesn't have any hold on me, or rather, it doesn't have to. That's why it says walk in the light, right? It's a choice there every single day. Walk in the light, walk in the light, walk, walk in the light, walk in the light, because guess what happens when you're not walking in the light? You're in the buckwheat, right? You're over there with everybody else. You ever sing in that choir? Yeah, you know, everyone else, oh, <laughs> anyway, let's see what the Christians are doing. And we're in the church, <laughs> you know. No, no, no. We have no need of anything. We have no fear of anything. We are more than conquerors. And guess what? You can do what you want to me. And you can put the padlocks on this church, and you can put me in the FEMA camp. I'll preach there. That's fine. But guess what? My guy's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back, and he's going to set things right. He's going to redeem this world. It all is because of what he did here. All of it. Otherwise, it's just words. But God proved, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said, freely I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. And he called them his friends. And so that on the night that he was betrayed, they're sharing the Passover meal. And remember what he said to him, oh, how I've longed to share this with you. Jesus did Passover with his disciples every single year. They didn't, he was a Jew. They didn't skip Passover. Ah, oh, you know what, guys? No, 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 no. Up until that night, Jesus did Passover, but he said, how long I have waited and wished to share this meal with you. And he changes everything about Passover that night. He just takes the bread and he takes the wine. He didn't pass the meat because he was the lamb. And he passes the bread and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. When you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. Take this cup. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. When you drink of it together, do it in remembrance of me. So the Bible says that when we're taking this, we ought to reflect We ought to examine ourselves. Now, this is not a works-based thing. I don't care what you did yesterday, okay? If you were so blackout drunk yesterday that you don't even know what day it is today, where's my laughter? I don't get any laughter. (laughs) I hope none of you really were, you know. Today is a new day. Today is a new day in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that he doesn't forgive you of if you ask of him. And so as the elements are being passed out, We sit here and we reflect. First, I say this, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to dinner. Me? Me? I don't get invited places a lot. You know what I mean? I tend to be inappropriate, you know, loud. But me? You've invited me to sup with you and you with me? And you've put a place in heaven for me? Me? Yes, you. 
So the first thing I say is, thank you. And then I say it again, thank you. And then I say, Lord, search me and see if there's a wicked way in me. You know the things in my life, Lord, that you've been dealing with me about for years. And I go like this. I know you don't. This is just me personally. You guys have nothing you're dealing with, right? Strongholds in your life. Things that you've been getting beat up by for years. Lord, you know me. Give me victory, final victory over the things in my life that I hate because they go against what your word says. And Lord, see if there's another wicked way in me that I haven't even thought of. Because the Bible says I desire mercy in that sacrifice. You could do all the right things and you could say all the right words. And if you don't have love for your brother, what does the Bible say? You're a sounding gong, a resounding symbol. You could surrender your body to the flames. You could give everything you have to the poor. It profits you nothing without love. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, the love that you have in your heart for God through and only through Jesus Christ. And secondly, the love you have for everyone else. God, help me love them. This week, Lord, when I go out in the work week tomorrow, or when I'm on Facebook this afternoon, and that one person posts that thing, help me love them. Help me wait a little bit and then respond with a comment. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Try to be a blessing to someone this week. Lord, help me to be like Jesus. Help me to be like Jesus. That's what we say. So, and that's me. Whatever you want to say to God, this is the examining of yourselves. Just let your hearts be laid bare while the elements are passed out, and then we'll share it together. All right, I really mean it this guy, this time, guys. Come on. Really? <laughs> the grave. 
I hear it like, is he worthy? <laughs> is he worthy? You think? You think? And it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how many times he's come alongside me when I'm in the state of realizing how unworthy I am. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to know the things that I know. I don't certainly don't deserve to serve your people. I don't deserve any of it. And he comes alongside me and he says, but I called you. But I called you. And I chose you. And so you are worthy. See? It's the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world by your faith. And by his stripes, we're healed. Amen? Let's share. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all of the grace and the mercy that you've bestowed upon us, Lord, that you've poured out on us so liberally. Father, we pray that we would be a grateful people, Lord. We would never allow our hearts to be hardened either towards you, Father, or towards the other people that you, um, <laughs> that you died for, that you sent your son to die for, Lord, who just don't know him yet or the do know him, Father. We pray that you would help us to have compassion and love. Lord, not to make it ever about ourselves, but to make it about you and to make it about him. 
we're so grateful, Lord, that you make up the lacking in our lives. <laughs> For as far short as we fall of your glory every single day, Lord, the blood of Jesus Christ makes up all that distance. And we're looked at as righteous and holy because of what he's accomplished. Thank you so much for that. Father, I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters as they go from this place into the week. I pray that you'd watch over them. I pray that you'd keep them and cause your face to shine upon them, that you'd be gracious to them. I pray that you'd lead them along the paths of righteousness and truth. Father, and that you'd give them the courage and the faith to follow you wherever it is that you would lead them, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.